Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update, Multiple Myeloma Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Ken Anderson for an oncologist investigator perspective on this fascinating disease, and he began our conversation by commenting on the evolution of treatment over the past few decades. Even going back to when we first could treat myeloma, the history is really only 50 years. Melphalan prednisone tablets came along in the 1960s, and we were able to achieve survivals of two or three years. In the 80s and 90s, high-dose therapy and stem cell transplant came along, and patients lived on average three to four years. What's really happened in the last decade is a paradigm shift, a completely new treatment strategy in myeloma with novel therapies that target not only the cancer cell, but also the bone marrow in which the cancer cell lives. These are the proteasome inhibitor, bortezomib, and now carfilzomib, and a couple of the other drugs called immunomodulatory drugs of the thalidomide, lenalidomide, and pomalidomide class. But these novel agents have resulted in patients living at least two to three times longer than they did just 10 years ago. Can you talk a little bit more about how proteasome inhibitors and IMIDs work? Surely. The proteasome inhibitors, which were first illustrated by the drug bortezomib and the second-generation drug called carfilzomib, these proteasome inhibitors work by inhibiting the garbage disposal called the proteasome inside the myeloma cell. And honestly, there's no cancer cell that makes more protein than a multiple myeloma cell. And if it really can't secrete or degrade that protein, it literally fills up with its own garbage protein and commits suicide. Now, there are other activities of the proteasome inhibitor, such as blocking the ability of the myeloma cell to hone in and bind and grow in the bone marrow, and also some inhibition by the proteasome inhibitor of those factors that are needed for the myeloma cell to grow, survive, and resist drugs. The IMIDs, the immunomodulatory drugs, in fact, do all of those things that I've just mentioned. And one more, they're called immunomodulatory, so they modulate the immune system, thalidomide, lenalidomide, and soon pomalidomide, so they actually turn on the patient's own immune system. Their T cells, natural killer cells, and this hybrid T cell, natural killer cell, all of them are turned on when patients take these IMIDs to have immune responses against their own cancer. So the summary really is the novel agents certainly, like conventional treatments, target the tumor cell. They do more than that, though. They also target the microenvironment and make it very inhospitable <laughs> for the myeloma cell to grow and survive there. Can you talk a little bit about how myeloma is diagnosed and staged? Surely. Myeloma is a disease characterized by excess plasma cells or antibody-forming cells in the bone marrow. Most patients have not only the excess plasma cells in the bone marrow, but they have a monoclonal protein that is made by those plasma cells and secreted into the blood and or urine. So the most characteristic features are the excess plasma cells and the protein made by those cells. Associated features may or may not be present in patients, including high blood calcium, renal dysfunction, anemia, or bone disease. When we diagnose multiple myeloma, it may or may not be in a state that requires therapy immediately. The features I just mentioned, hypercalcemia, renal disease, anemia, and bone disease, in the context of the excess plasma cells and proteins, that is called active myeloma, and would require therapy. If any one of those four features, the CRAB features, are present. In contrast, if you have the diagnosis of myeloma but you do not have those features, it's an earlier stage called smoldering multiple myeloma, 
which literally, as the name implies, doesn't need therapy acutely and may actually smolder for months to years before it progresses to active myeloma needing therapy. Now, one of the issues you mentioned earlier is the question of using transplant, autologous transplant in patients, generally thought about more in younger patients without any other serious medical problems. Where are we today in terms of this strategy? Well, transplant is still a standard of care in multiple myeloma. There are multiple randomized trials now dating back into the early 1990s that compared conventional chemotherapy with high-dose therapy, usually high-dose melphalan, and autologous stem cell transplantation. Those trials were the rationale for high-dose therapy and stem cell transplant becoming a standard in patients who are 70 years of age or less with adequate liver, lung, heart, and kidney function. However, in the last decade, we have the advent of novel therapies, thalidomide, lenalidomide, bortezomib. Remarkably, if you treat patients with lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone right from the outset, everybody responds, three quarters get a very good response, and literally half of the patients get a complete response. So this kind of extent and frequency of response is now allowing for us together with our patients to redefine the role of transplant in the era of novel treatments. There's a large trial ongoing between the United States and France, lenalidomide, bortezomib, dexamethasone, with or without transplant, and a large trial already finished in Italy comparing novel therapies, literally oral novel therapies, lenalidomide together with melphalan and prednisone from the past, is being compared with high-dose melphalan and stem cell transplant twice, or double transplant. These kinds of trials will determine for all of us the role of transplant, whether in the era of novel treatment, transplant adds value or not. The other important point to mention is it may not be either or. It may very well end up that we do novel combination treatments, a stem cell transplant, and what's recently been shown and published in the New England Journal of Medicine in a study from the United States and a study from France is evidence supporting the view that lenalidomide, one of these novel agents, can be used post-transplant and in so doing markedly prolong, honestly double, the progression-free survival and in the United States extend overall survival. So I think the answer is that novel therapies have also revolutionized the way we use transplant and are allowing us together with our patients now to reevaluate its role. What about the patients who don't go through transplant? How are they approached? And what about this sort of issue of longer-term therapy or maintenance, I guess, in that situation? Well, there was a study also in what we call the transplant-ineligible patients. They're usually too old or they have end-organ dysfunction that doesn't make transplant a safe option for them. The particular trial that I'm referring to was by Dr. Palumbo and colleagues in Europe, and they used melphalan and prednisone tablets in these transplant-eligible patients with lenalidomide as an induction, with lenalidomide as an induction plus lenalidomide maintenance. And what they found and recently published, again in the New England Journal of Medicine, is that the use of lenalidomide melphalan prednisone followed by lenalidomide maintenance markedly prolonged progression-free survival. And in the population that was 65 years of age to 75 years of age, there was also a trend for a benefit in overall survival. So what I guess I'm directly saying is that the novel therapies are also impacting the non-transplant or transplant ineligible folks as well. In the United States, we don't utilize melphalan and prednisone as commonly as they do in Europe. So the elderly population in America often receives lenalidomide and dexamethasone 
or may receive lenalidomide bortezomib and dexamethasone at slightly less doses so that it would be more tolerable. It seems like there's a trend towards trying to figure out a way to give people more tolerable treatment for longer periods of time. It's absolutely a key feature. You know, we didn't even have effective therapies that long ago, and so we didn't have the option to consider, at least as a primary consideration, the tolerability. But now we do, and I'll highlight for you that we have now the evidence we've mentioned of the proteasome inhibitor bortezomib working very well in myeloma. I'm very excited to share that we have oral proteasome inhibitors now in clinical trials. Proteasome inhibitors that are very well tolerated, oral, and taken either once or twice a week. And honestly, when these new oral proteasome inhibitors, it's called MLN9708, but when it's combined with lenalidomide and dexamethasone, and I want to stress that's an all-oral regimen, very well tolerated, we again are seeing universal responses, and they're very significant responses. Now, the data is early, but I think what you're hearing is that we're moving quickly to an oral regimen in myeloma that is very well tolerated. I personally have had a patient on oral lenalidomide, the first patient ever to get the drug. (laughs) Now he's in his 12th year and tolerating it very well. So excitingly, we have effective therapies, but especially if they're gonna be long-term or what we call maintenance therapies, they obviously need to be very well tolerated. You mentioned the use of lenalidomide maintenance after transplant and the two trials now that have come out supporting that. What are sort of the potential downsides or the downsides, and specifically the question has been raised about second cancers? Yes, the second cancers are secondary cancers that have been seen and associated with maintenance lenalidomide are clearly very important. I want to hasten to add, however, that we need to put this into context. The number of cases is really a handful. And what is of special concern is some of these cancers are adult acute lymphoblastic leukemia or adult non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or Hodgkin's disease that would be considered to be unusual. Now, people have looked at the factors that may be associated with the development of secondary cancer. One of them is lenalidomide maintenance. One of them is being male. One of them is having had extensive alkylating or DNA damaging agents before the transplant. I mention all this because the message for all of us may be not to use such extensive DNA damaging agents before we do the transplant and the maintenance, rather than not to do the maintenance. And our dear friend Antonio Palumbo from Italy has done what I think is a very important analysis. He's looked at the risk of progression and death from multiple myeloma compared to the risk of secondary cancers. And there's an overwhelming benefit for the use of the lenalidomide maintenance. Again, it's not to minimize things. We need to appreciate that patients with myeloma are often elderly. All of us who are 60 years of age or older have a one to 2% chance of getting cancer every year. We know that melphalan, either in low doses or high dose and transplant, has an increased risk of secondary cancers. All of this is important, but I think we need to put it into context of the relative risk-benefit ratio for patients with myeloma. So in the patient who you're thinking about getting a transplant, a younger, healthy patient, what are the various alternatives that people consider in terms of the initial systemic treatment before the transplant? Well, there are many options to consider, and that's really another blessing for us who are patients or caregivers alike. We have choices that start with lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, an oral regimen that's very well tolerated, very high response rates which continue to increase in overall and extent of frequency with time. We have bortezomib dexamethasone. That regimen is also very effective 
often used and preferred in the context of patients presenting with renal dysfunction. When we combine three drugs, which honestly is more active than any of the other doublets I just mentioned, the most common triplet combinations are lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, or cytoxan, one of our old friends, together with bortezomib and dexamethasone, so-called Cybor-D. But those two regimens have very high extent and frequency of response. Now, more recently, we have new proteasome inhibitors coming. Carfilzomib is an IV, more potent proteasome inhibitor, and MLN9708 is an oral proteasome inhibitor. Both of them, it would seem, when combined with lenalidomide and dexamethasone in newly diagnosed patients, also have very, very high response, extent, and frequency. So the short answer is we use doublets of novel agents incorporating lenalidomide or bortezomib, or we use triplets that can combine those two drugs or combine bortezomib with cytoxan and dexamethasone in the Cybor-D regimen. What kinds of side effects and complications do you see? We talked about second cancers as a potential issue with lenalidomide. What else do you see clinically? Yeah, well, with lenalidomide, it is quite well tolerated. We've learned from the initial trials that were performed in patients with advanced myeloma that the starting dose of 25 milligrams of lenalidomide together with dexamethasone can, in fact, result in low blood counts and perhaps a quarter of the patients treated. So the first thing to mention is we can see low blood counts with low white blood cell count and or platelets, which can necessitate reducing the dose of lenalidomide. Lenalidomide is an immunomodulatory drug, so together with dexamethasone especially, there can be a higher incidence of clots. And in fact, the reason we use dexamethasone, we call it low-dose dexamethasone, 40 milligrams once a week instead of the old, more intensive regimen, is to cut down on this clotting risk. Those are really the major issues. Now, in terms of side effects in patients, symptomatology, skin rash can occur with the IMIDs. Diarrhea is not uncommon with the IMIDs, which is treated symptomatically. I might mention here a little pearl, which is that probiotics in particular can be helpful at controlling the diarrhea that we've seen that can complicate patients' lives while they're on lenalidomide. That's interesting. So yogurt? Yogurt, and there's a over-the-counter called Align probiotic, right. which has been very effective. Right. Now, what about bortezomib side effects? Bortezomib has had as its side effects the main issues being GI dysfunction or discomfort at the time that the drug is administered. We can usually deal with that with premedications. But more importantly, thrombocytopenia we see and we measure blood counts over time. But neuropathy by far is the most common attendant complication, if you will, of this therapy. Now, fortunately, there's been great progress made in recognition of the neuropathy and implication or initiation of strategies to avoid neuropathy. And what I mean by this in particular is we have staging systems for neuropathy. We, especially our nurses, are monitoring for any signs of a painful neuropathy whatsoever. It's the first question that they ask patients at every single visit when they're here for bortezomib, and we intervene very early by reducing either the frequency of administration, the dose, or both. But suffice it to say, if you give bortezomib weekly for four weeks out of five instead of twice a week for two weeks, so four doses of bortezomib, but in the first weekly strategy, it's given over four weeks, instead of giving four doses over two weeks. The weekly schedule really reduces the overall frequency of neuropathy and the extent of neuropathy. You can further reduce both of those parameters, both the overall and the extent of neuropathy, by giving subcutaneous bortezomib in lieu of intravenous bortezomib. So it's very common now in our clinic and many clinics around the country and world 
to give bortezomib weekly for four weeks out of five and give it subcutaneously. When that is done, the incidence of neuropathy drops way down overall, and the incidence of severe neuropathy, defined as a painful neuropathy, is certainly less than 5%. Now, you mentioned the new proteasome inhibitor, carfilzomib. First of all, what do we know about how it works on the proteasome compared to, say, something like bortezomib? Yes, we've been very involved in the study of carfilzomib and very involved even at the level of the FDA just very recently. But carfilzomib is what's called an irreversible proteasome inhibitor. So it literally binds covalently to the proteasome. As a consequence, the extent and the duration of proteasome inhibition is greater than what we see with bortezomib. Now, there's good news for patients and caregivers alike on both fronts here. What I mean by that is that carfilzomib in patients who literally have no other options, they're bortezomib refractory, lenalidomide refractory, or intolerant, roughly 20% of those patients respond to carfilzomib, and it lasts duration of response on average eight months with survival 15 months or more. So there are patients, what I'm saying, who are in fact untreatable with any other treatment known who can respond and have meaningful responses and survival benefit with this new agent. Not only that, secondly, the side effect profile is very favorable. The neuropathy that I just mentioned that's been attendant to bortezomib use clearly can be minimized by the weekly and subcutaneous strategies. But in the carfilzomib realm, we really haven't seen severe neuropathy, even in patients who have been on the drug for months and years. So on the one hand, we have an agent that works when most other treatments that we have have already failed. And on the other side, this treatment is well tolerated. So it meets the efficacy and the safety tolerability and was very well received at a recent ODAC meeting. So clearly in the situation where patients already had progression of the disease after another proteasome inhibitor such as bortezomib or bortezomib and other agents, the fact that you can see benefit is you know, great for the patient. What about using the drug up front in the same manner that you were talking before in terms of bortezomib with an imid? Yeah. So the concept of putting together an imid like lenalidomide with a proteasome inhibitor like bortezomib has, as you suggest, been extended to carfilzomib now. And Dr. Jakoboviak from Michigan, actually he's now from the University of Chicago, had reported for us at ASCO recently the experience when you put together carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone in newly diagnosed patients. Responses were universal, and the complete or near-complete responses were approaching 80% in that context, increasing with the duration of therapy. Even more importantly, there were 22 patients in whom they were able to look, these were patients who had a stringent complete response, in whom they were able to look for what we call minimal residual disease. This is minimal levels of myeloma detectable by multicolor immunofluorescence, six different colors to try to identify perhaps one in several hundred thousand or one in one million myeloma cells among normal bone marrow cells. And in 20 of 22 of those patients who had complete response, they could find with this very stringent molecular probe for residual disease, they proved that there in fact was no residual myeloma. This is the kind of level of response that we haven't seen in myeloma before. It reminds me of CML in the old days in the early 90s, 1993, when imatinib came along and we started to see molecular complete responses in CML. So if we fast forward things another decade, now here we are with myeloma and with combinations of agents, including this new proteasome inhibitor, we're starting to see that extent of response as well. You can visualize someday that will be part of our response system. That will be perhaps allowing us who needs to have maintenance or not prospectively determined. So major advance in our armamentarium.
You mentioned the fact that it seems to have less or minimal neurotoxicity. Any sort of unusual side effects? I've heard about dyspnea. Yeah, so there were concerns, and there always are concerns, for cardiac-related events, congestive heart failure, for dyspnea or shortness of breath, and liver dysfunction abnormalities as well. But when, in fact, one looks very carefully at the patients treated, there is, in fact, an underlying degree of dysfunction in all of those systems in patients with myeloma who are elderly and have had lots of prior therapy. So I think that there may be, in fact, issues that we need to consider. We need to evaluate in this setting as we do in any other, the liver, lung, and heart functions before we actually treat patients with agents. But suffice it to say, when compared with the side effect profile for some of the other agents we talked about, bortezomib, the imids, and lenalidomide, there really were no big major differences here with this new proteasome inhibitor, carfilzomib, compared to the prior proteasome inhibitor, bortezomib, in terms of adverse effects. And if the drug becomes available, which sounds like it's pretty likely, how would you utilize it outside a trial setting in your own practice? Yeah, I think that's really an important question. You know, its value, as I've shared, it extends the spectrum of patients who can benefit from proteasome inhibition. So patients who don't respond to bortezomib can, in 20% of cases, respond here. Patients who have neuropathy who wouldn't be eligible for proteasome inhibitors can now be eligible for proteasome inhibition. As I think is true with the other drugs, when bortezomib was new or when lenalidomide was new, so it's true here. This drug will be used often in relapsed myeloma or relapsed refractory myeloma. I haven't mentioned it yet, but if you take carfilzomib and combine it with lenalidomide and dexamethasone in relapsed patients, that's the clinical trial called ASPIRE has just finished. A large number of patients exactly like this were treated with that combination. It's very, very active. My point, though, is that I think as soon as it's approved, it will be used in advanced disease, but just as the other agents, it will be moved very quickly up front because of the very exciting data I shared with you. Carfilzomib lenalidomide dexamethasone is very effective as initial therapy as well. You know, you talked about CML, and I guess that brings up the question of cure of myeloma either really eradicating the disease or just controlling it such that, like CML, you can live with treatment almost indefinitely or indefinitely. Where are we in that regard in terms of myeloma? Yeah, I think what's happened with myeloma is that with the advent of bortezomib and thalidomide in the late 1990s and into the early part 2003, we have extended the median survival in myeloma markedly compared to what we had before. If we now look at the era of bortezomib and lenalidomide, the most recent data by Shaji Kumar and colleagues is we have median survivals approaching seven to eight years. So it is said that we've at least doubled the median survival of patients with myeloma, particularly the young patients. We also have now the addition of maintenance therapy, which can prolong progression-free survival, at least double it, and extend overall survival. So when I see patients in the clinic nowadays, I think you can look them in the eye and say, you know, it's quite likely you're going to live a decade with your myeloma or longer. We really don't know. But where we're going with this is in terms of long-term disease-free survival and cure is the use of combinations of novel agents up front followed by maintenance therapy to prevent progression of disease, I think is extending survival in a meaningful way and is pushing us much more, at least into an operational definition of cure, growing old and dying from something else. And we talked a lot about lenalidomide, and before that, we had thalidomide, and you've mentioned pomalidomide as a new and as yet unapproved imid. 
What do we know about palmalidomide compared to these other two? Palmalidomide, we know quite a lot about in the laboratory, to be honest. We worked on it back in 1998 to remind us that it has a long track record, at least preclinically. It's more potent than either thalidomide or lenalidomide. And in fact, in clinical trials, phase one, two clinical trials, it has proven to have remarkable efficacy. What I mean specifically is that the response rates are 30% to 40% when you combine palmalidomide 4 milligrams for three weeks out of four together with dexamethasone 40 milligrams a week, low-dose dexamethasone. And this 30 to 40% response rate is very durable, duration on the order of eight months or longer. And it occurs in patients whose myeloma is refractory to both lenalidomide and bortezomib. The side effect profile is quite favorable. There can be clots, just like there is with any imid and dexamethasone, and so you need to prophylax with aspirin or more than aspirin if there are risk factors for clots. But the major other side effect, honestly, is a little bit of lowering of the white blood cell count which can necessitate dose modifications. But otherwise, it's extremely well tolerated. So we have an oral regimen that works, again, when no other currently available treatment does work in our patients. Earlier, you mentioned the issue of renal function, and myeloma is one of the few cancers where you can really see actually renal failure. How does that occur, and how do you approach patients like that? Well, renal failure in myeloma can be multifactorial. The first thing to mention to you is that, and the most obvious connection with multiple myeloma is the protein that's made by patients' cells, whether that would be a heavy chain and a light chain, so an IgGa or M, or a kappa and lambda light chain, or the combination heavy and light chain, any one of those can in fact cause havoc in the kidney two different ways. Firstly, there can be glomerular damage. This protein can actually deposit in the glomerulus and stop filtration. Secondly, there can be tubular defects. So these same proteins can block the filtration and or the reabsorption of protein in the kidney. So there's not a normal excretory function. So too much protein can block that and, if you will, foul up either the glomerular function, the filtration, or the export function in the tubules. In addition, there can be infiltration of myeloma cells into the kidney. We call the myeloma kidney. There can be hypercalcemia or hyperuricemia, very high levels of uric acid forming crystals and, again, precipitating renal failure. But far and away, the most common cause of renal failure in multiple myeloma is dehydration. Patients with myeloma get dehydrated. The problems I just mentioned occur. The proteins precipitate and block filtration, glomerular function or tubular function, and patients present with acute renal failure. Another clinical pearl I might mention is that when patients with myeloma come in as their initial sign, it's often back pain. And when general practitioners or we see patients, most of the time patients with back pain who are old don't have myeloma. So they're started on non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, which is very reasonable. The problem comes that NSAIDs, as they're called, decrease renal blood flow and just the combination of especially high doses of NSAIDs in the context of myeloma can precipitate acute renal failure. And so I've seen quite a number of patients over the years who came in with new renal failure as their first sign of myeloma. Now, one of the things I just wanna mention, uh, this could be a very long discussion, but I just wanna emphasize that the teaching of the past, that patients who have renal failure in myeloma is not reversible, is not correct any longer. Putting it in a positive way, patients who come to see us with renal dysfunction should all be approached as though it's reversible. Drugs like bortezomib, 
very, very importantly, can rescue patients from acute renal failure. I'm very much of the mind that the imids, lenalidomide and others, can stimulate cellular responses that actually can resorb protein. So we've seen resorption of protein, even resorption of another cause of renal dysfunction, which is amyloidosis in the kidney, the deposition of amyloid fibrils in the kidney itself, can in fact be approached now with novel therapies. So renal dysfunction is not the terrible adverse feature it was in the past in myeloma. And I guess we should say that there are patients who go from being on dialysis to being off dialysis. There have been quite remarkable examples of patients who have been honestly completely dialysis dependent, who gradually over time recover at least enough renal function to go off of dialysis. We also talked about the issue of peripheral neuropathy associated with the proteasome inhibitors or bortezomib, but multiple myeloma itself can cause peripheral neuropathy. How does that happen and how do you approach those patients? Yes, I think a very important point is the incidence of peripheral neuropathy that can be existent right from day one. It really depends on how carefully you look for it. If you look for it with nerve conduction studies and very sensitive techniques, as my colleague Paul Richardson has done in studies, you can find neuropathy present in literally 80% or more of the patients right from the outset. However, it's usually not clinically significant, and when it is clinically significant, we keep it in mind when we're choosing the appropriate therapies. So therapies that would be utilized in patients who have neuropathy right from the get-go would include lenalidomide, dexamethasone kinds of agents, but probably would exclude, at least initially, bortezomib or thalidomide kinds of agents that have the attendant neuropathy. And again, you see patients who have the neuropathy reversed? In my experience, if you have a neuropathy that is related to bortezomib, the proteasome inhibitor, if you stop or dose reduce the proteasome inhibitor, and there are now papers that document this to be the case, well over 90% of patients at about three months will have complete or near complete resolution of their proteasome inhibitor related neuropathy. My experience, sadly, with thalidomide-related neuropathy has not been the same. Unfortunately, I think that the neuropathy from thalidomide is, in many cases, irreversible. Whether it's reversible or not, it highlights for me the very proactive role that nurses need to play in care of patients, particularly in the neuropathy. Our nurses have actually a very, very patient-centered approach here. They're quickly asking about neuropathy. They know the correct questions to ask at each and every visit. They're very proactive at talking with us about altering the dose and or schedule. And we have a cocktail, if you will, a menu of strategies which start out with medications such as Neurontin and other medications that treat the neuropathy and extend to antioxidants that can be used, lipoic acid and things like that for relief, vitamin B vitamins in particular. And one thing I'll mention to you that is a favorite of our nurses in particular is literally cocoa butter. Cocoa butter that is used to massage the fingers or toes which are involved with neuropathy is remarkable in its ability to bring symptomatic relief. So the best way to treat neuropathy in summary is to be very proactive early and not let it progress to the point where it becomes painful. So the last thing I want to ask you about is the issue of bone in myeloma. What kinds of problems do you see? How do you approach the prevention of problems and treatment of them? Well, bone disease is the leading cause of morbidity and limiting the quality of life of our patients. It's usually lytic bone disease or osteoporosis or both. Patients can present with fractures of their long bones and weight-bearing areas or fractures in the spine with compression fractures that can be very, very serious. The way we have approached it since the early 1990s, and it's such a blessing, is with the use of amino bisphosphonates, which were shown back then in large randomized trials 
to avoid or at least lessen the frequency of bony complications. So skeletal related events, whether they be lytic lesions or they be compression fractures or hypercalcemia or need for radiation or surgery for bone complications, those skeletal related events could be reduced when patients took monthly amino bisphosphonates. So the ASCO guidelines, the NCCN guidelines, many other organizations have endorsed monthly amino bisphosphonates for at least two years in patients who have active myeloma. Now, we have learned very recently that although these agents were used to, in fact, benefit the bone disease complications in myeloma, they also have now, in large studies, proven to extend the survival of patients with myeloma. The large MRC trial in the United Kingdom of 2,000 patients with myeloma showed that those patients who took intravenous amino bisphosphonate, zoledronic acid, had 5.5 months overall survival advantage compared to those who did not. Now the problem with the amino bisphosphonates is it's very hard to give them in patients who have renal dysfunction, okay? And we just talked about how renal dysfunction is very important in multiple myeloma. So we and others are looking very diligently for other agents. Denosumab has been studied in breast cancer, for example, antibody to rank ligand or interfering with the rank rank ligand interaction and been very effective. And soon a large randomized trial will begin in multiple myeloma. There are other experimental agents that are being tested, DKK1 antibody, et cetera, to try to be able to treat bone disease in patients who have renal dysfunction. The final point I want to mention to you is that the drugs that we use to treat myeloma, the proteasome inhibitor bortezomib as an example, also helps bone disease. It kills osteoclasts, these bone resorbing cells, and it stimulates osteoblasts, the bone forming cells. So besides amino bisphosphonates, the only other class of drugs we have that directly does this, that causes new bone formation, at least in myeloma so far, are the proteasome inhibitors. Now you mentioned the usual duration of two years. In what situations would you extend beyond that? And what about using bisphosphonates in people with myeloma without bone disease? Yeah, we would use amino bisphosphonates beyond two years in patients who had evidence of ongoing active disease with ongoing bone resorption. So the standards really say, or the guidelines really say, for patients who have active myeloma, so if somebody has relapsed myeloma, that would be active disease, that person should be on monthly amino bisphosphonates, even if it's well beyond two years. Now, in terms of treating patients who don't have bone disease, honestly, the guidelines still do not include that recommendation. What I would share with you is if you look in preclinical or laboratory studies, even in patients who have smoldering myeloma, who don't right now fit the category for treatment with amino bisphosphonates, if you look carefully, they actually do have too much bone resorption and not enough new bone formation. We just can't detect it yet with our standard testing. So, so far, the guidelines really call for using amino bisphosphonates mainly in patients who have bone disease and are requiring therapy for their myeloma. So final question in terms of downside of bone-targeted therapy, we have out there ONJ, osteonecrosis of the jaw. What is it? How often do we see it? How is it prevented and treated? So osteonecrosis of the jaw is a very serious complication with other drugs associated with the amino bisphosphonates, whether that be pomidronate or zoledronic acid. It is literally defined by open bone in the oral cavity. It has been associated with amino bisphosphonates most commonly. It's very hard to make a relationship between the frequency of amino bisphosphonate use and the likelihood of getting this osteonecrosis of the jaw. 
The pathology here is thought to be related to the fact that the amino bisphosphonate accumulates in the bone. And in fact, eventually, one has small necrotic bone formation as a consequence with related infection and, in fact, osteonecrosis as a consequence. What we know so far and what we do in all of our patients is very, again, proactively make sure they have good oral hygiene. Make sure they see the dentist and those dentists who are focused on this issue before they begin treatment if possible. Secondly, we know to avoid invasive oral procedures. So tooth extractions, for example, should not be done proximate to an administration of amino bisphosphonate. Very, very high risk for the development of ONJ. But with a few simple rules, we can make the likelihood of ONJ very, very low, way down in the less than 1% incidence. So I think we had hoped that other medicines such as denosumab and others that are coming along might avoid ONJ, but so far in the breast cancer studies, ONJ is still a complication, occurs with other agents as well. We need, therefore, to be proactive, good oral hygiene, appreciate that you should use amino bisphosphonates when you need to and not use them beyond two years in patients who don't have active myeloma. I next met with Ms. J.C. Spong for her take on myeloma, and she began by presenting a 69-year-old man from her practice. When he first presented, he was actually in pretty rough shape. He came in in a wheelchair, very fatigued, very weak, and really did not know anything about myeloma at the time when he was initially diagnosed and came to us. He was started initially on Cyborg D. He did very, very well. Within one or two cycles, was out of the wheelchair, much less fatigue. You know, his hemoglobin had increased significantly. He had a lot of bone disease? He did have a lot of bone disease initially, which is part of what put him in the wheelchair, a lot of bone pain. What was his life like before this started? Was he working? I'm not sure if he was working at the time or had already retired, but a very active gentleman. He's a big golfer. That was a big thing. And what about his environment? Did he have a spouse? Yes, a spouse with three children who were very, very involved, which helped him a lot, especially when he was first diagnosed. You know, it's so overwhelming. He was in so much pain you know, so weak. He came in with his entire family, wife and daughters, who played a very, very active part in his care, became very educated on the disease, came to, I would say, almost all of his appointments for the first maybe even year or so. And in those initial discussions, I would guess that got into the issue of curability, lack of curability, what might happen. This is 2007, which in myeloma years is a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. So now he received a, what might be called a triple regimen, the so-called Cyborg-D regimen. And actually a lot of other patients get the RBD regimen. And then there's others who get just lenalidomide or bortezomib with dexamethasone. But can you kind of basically explain it from the perspective of what you say to patients who might be starting any one of these therapies, kind of what to expect, particularly in terms of toxicity? With this specific treatment, Cyborg-D, which is cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, we certainly, with the bortezomib specifically, talk to them about the possibility of peripheral neuropathy. That's definitely an important topic to discuss with them. You know, back then, it was given initially in this clinical trial twice weekly IV. After, you know, years of doing that twice weekly, it was found that there were higher rates of peripheral neuropathy. And since, I believe most physicians are giving it once weekly now, um, so they're seeing less peripheral neuropathy with the once-weekly dosing. So we definitely talked a lot about the side effects of the bortezomib, specifically in the neuropathy. With the cyclophosphamide, that's an oral drug that's tolerated quite well. With some patients, one thing that you know, I certainly try and speak with them about as well is that's 10 pills. Again, it's oral, so they take 10 pills. The dexamethasone is given orally as well, another additional 10 pills. So it's a significant number of pills for the patients to take, but just once weekly. And then again, we're seeing them in the chemo unit once weekly for that treatment as well. We talk about definitely the side effects of the steroids. That can be really tough on patients, especially the elderly patients, especially any patients that, you know, might have diabetes. So that's certainly, you know, a topic there is steroid can raise their blood sugar and, you know, cause some insomnia. So there's a lot of education on the dexamethasone, certainly. 
So you mentioned that this man received bortezomib twice weekly IV. Where are you today in terms of treatment weekly and subcutaneously? I would say right now we're about half and half moving more towards sub-Q. A lot of patients, when we're initially starting the drug, would prefer sub-Q. And since we're seeing, you know, such lower rates of neuropathy, that's a good option. And patients who already have some existing neuropathy, and this might be the best drug for them. So yeah, I would say right now we're about half and half, moving more in the direction of using subcutaneous. What about weekly versus biweekly? Weekly. And any observations in terms of the actual execution of the sub-Q, any issues with local reactions or anything different than other sub-Q injections? We've had a few patients who have had some immediate reactions to the area where they've had just some redness and swelling, very little pain, but mostly in that area, it does resolve over a few days. So no major reactions that we've seen with the immediate injection in our center. Now, this man went for transplant. How does your center approach the issue of transplant as people get older? Is there kind of an age where you kind of pull back from it? Not necessarily. You know, especially we find, you know, in the area where we are treating patients, we have a lot of very active, active older patients that, you know, play golf daily. So we don't really look at a specific age cutoff for transplant, really look more at the patient as a whole whether they have any comorbidities and those certain things and deciding whether they're a transplant candidate. And how did he actually tolerate the cyborg and the transplant? Both very, very well. And then post-transplant, wasn't putting on any maintenance therapy at that time. Unfortunately, he did relapse in May 2009 with a pathologic fracture to his femur. And at that time, he was started on lenalidomide and dexamethasone. He's an interesting gentleman in that he did ultimately developed some extramedullary disease on PET scan. And so at that point in time, they did put him back on Cyborg D around November 2010. And he was on that for several months, but unfortunately did progress again and then was started on a clinical trial with pomalidomide in about April 2011. He was successful on that treatment for about a year, unfortunately relapsed late 2011, early 2012, and was ultimately admitted for his second transplant in February of this year. So you mentioned that after the transplant, which was a few years ago, he did not receive any kind of maintenance. Then when he progressed, he actually got what nowadays a lot of people use as maintenance, which is lenalidomide. What is going on right now in your shop in terms of post-transplant maintenance? When is it used and what kind of treatment is used? Yes, in our center, most physicians are adopting using maintenance therapy, especially in the high-risk population, you know, especially with all the, you know, the new studies that have come out, which most of the studies have been done using lenalidomide. So that would say that is the drug of choice. But yes, I would say most physicians are adopting using a maintenance therapy, usually starting about day 100. What do you say to patients who are getting lenalidomide in terms of, again, preparing them, whether it's in maintenance or active treatment? And how do you all approach the issue of thrombosis prevention? Yeah, certainly I often go in and will educate patients on this drug, especially when they first start it, and then certainly when they start it as a maintenance regimen. But I certainly go over all the different side effects, and one of those important side effects to mention is the possibility of deep vein thrombosis, especially when used in combination with dexamethasone. So that's an important topic. And with most patients, if they're just standard risk, they've never had maybe a DVT in the past, no other major comorbidities, our center is okay using just aspirin, daily aspirin. But again, if they've had any significant DVT in the past or event or any other you know, comorbidities that would put them at higher risk for a DVT, we would put them on something stronger like Lovenox or Warfarin. Now, you mentioned that he received the drug homolidomide, which currently is not actually FDA approved. So I guess that was part of a trial. Yes. But that's, I guess, the third major so-called IMID, immune modulatory drug out there. First, we had thalidomide. Now, lenalidomide, which seems like it was mostly what people are using, mm -hmm. and then pomalidomide. Now, this patient seemed like he benefited. He was on it for a year, mm -hmm. but it was interesting that he'd already had disease progression on lenalidomide, so it's interesting that that might happen. Any observations in general when you've seen patients receive this drug, pomalidomide, in terms of side effects and efficacy? Side effects, it seems to have, you know, a similar side effect profile to the other imids. 
seeing it only in clinical trial, we're seeing it more right now being used in the relapse refractory setting, but the response rates have been very good in patients who have previously received lenalidomide or not. And I would say that one of the toughest side effects is the myelosuppression in this relapse refractory setting on this drug, keeping their blood counts up and stable enough to continue the drug. So what's his current situation and what's his quality of life right now? He did have definitely a tougher time with his second transplant, pretty weak, pretty, you know, fatigued and had some issues in the transplant period with diarrhea and nausea, vomiting. But he just completed his day 100 evaluation earlier this month and starting to feel much better. Not nearly as active as he wants to be or hopes to be, but he's doing very, very well. And they're going to likely have him return in a month to decide on a maintenance therapy. The maintenance therapy that they're looking at would be RVD or CYBRD. What have you observed in him, his wife, and his loved ones over the last five years as they've sort of gone through all this? You know, definitely in the beginning, again, as I mentioned, his daughters, his wife came to every single visit, probably, you know, again, for the first year, maybe even through his first transplant. Since then, he's been very educated on his disease, has spent a lot of time learning about the disease, attending different conferences in the Valley. So he's very comfortable. He calls appropriately and his family is still very involved, not quite as involved, you know, as they were in the beginning when I think he definitely needed them more by his side, but very close with his family. They stay in touch and, again, are definitely around, especially through his transplant period. What have you seen in this man's mood and his coping with having a pretty difficult situation? This man specifically has been amazing. His coping has been more than I could imagine. He's just taken it all in stride, especially at, you know, each relapse. I think the doctors do a really good job educating these patients up front that it isn't a curable disease yet. With many of these patients, we do consider a chronic disease, but they really definitely let these patients know that they are going to relapse. This is an expected part of their treatment. Fortunately, we have a lot of new drugs in the works. There's a lot of options for patients today. So a lot of these patients really, I think, take it amazingly well at relapse, knowing there's more options for them. So let's talk about your 54-year-old man. Can you talk a little bit about how he came to see you all and what happened? Sure. He actually came to us. He'd been initially diagnosed with an IgG kappa smoldering myeloma, had a smoldering myeloma for several years, was not seeing us at our clinic. Anyhow, in early or mid, I guess, 2011, it did appear that his disease was becoming a bit more active. A bone marrow was repeated as plasma cytosis was higher. His hemoglobin was starting to fall, but his genetics on bone marrow looked good. He had pretty indolent disease. He was a very educated patient, took a lot of time in deciding what treatment he wanted. He'd offered a couple different treatments up front, including treatment with one of the new drugs, carfilzomib. So ultimately, he did decide to be treated with what we call the cyclone trial, which was cyclophosphamide, carfilzomib, thalidomide, and dexamethasone. He started this in October 2011, completed four cycles, did very, very well, achieved a very good partial response, and went on to transplant. He's completed his transplant successfully, and now they're talking about maintenance therapy for him. And again, what is his life situation or was his life situation before this started? So he's still working, has been able to maintain that. I mean, apart from, you know, the time taken away for transplant, but did very well with his treatment, has continued to work, felt very well throughout his treatment, did very, very well. Spouse and family? Yes. Again, what were the discussions like? Now, he came in just last year, you know, mm -hmm. less than a year ago. Mm -hmm. What were the discussions with him in terms of when he was first diagnosed in terms of expectations? Right. Initially, he was pretty hesitant to start therapy. An outside physician that he'd been seeing thought he should start therapy sooner. He was feeling so good. He really was not anxious to start therapy at all. He kind of put it off as long as he could. He was feeling so good. But ultimately, when you know they restaged him and saw the number of plasma cells in his bone marrow had gone up and he still was pretty asymptomatic, but his hemoglobin was dropping and it was you know ultimately time to start treatment. They'd offered him up front either Cyclone or Cyborg D. So he spent a lot of time educating himself on the two different regimens and the two different drugs and all the side effects. And ultimately, I think what put him over the edge to try the Cyclone was the decreased amount of neuropathy that we're seeing with the Carfilzomib versus Bortezomib. In terms of Carfilzomib, this is a proteasome inhibitor like Bortezomib, mm -hmm. but irreversibly binds the proteasome. 
What do we know about the drug and what did you observe in him and other patients who've gotten it in trials? Well, what we've seen so far is about a 94% overall response rate. So people are responding to this drug. Some of the side effects that we've seen are fatigue, anemia, some nausea, some shortness of breath. But the big thing is that the neuropathy seems to be pretty infrequent. So that's pretty exciting for any patients who maybe have some existing neuropathy or are worried about the neuropathy. It's safely given to patients with renal dysfunction. So in this gentleman, he actually tolerated it very well with very few side effects and, again, achieved a very good partial response post-transplant. His bone marrow looked great. He just had a really, really small M-spike, 0.1 in the serum. His free light chains normalized. So he had a very good response to his treatment and transplant. So this, I guess, you know, the idea a lot of times is you see activity in Asian and advanced disease, and then people move it up front. And I think there have been other studies that looked at carfilzomib in combination. There's another one that looked at that with lenalidomide, dexamethasone, sort of like RVD, except with the carfilzomib instead of the bortezomib. But when we were talking before about the pomalidomide, we were commenting on the fact that that patient had the disease progress on lenalidomide, yet still responded to pomalidomide. Have you seen that same thing with carfilzomib? And this man got it up front, but in people who've had, you know, prior treatment with bortezomib or recurrent disease, respond then to carfilzomib? We did have a certain number of patients who did receive it after they'd failed bortezomib and still did respond. Why don't we talk about your 87-year-old man? That always catches my attention. Yeah, he's a very interesting gentleman that we still see. He was actually diagnosed with probably what was an MGUS or a smoldering myeloma early in 1991, but was asymptomatic for, gosh, almost two decades. What happened then? He developed significant renal failure and anemia. Fortunately, there was no bone disease noted, but his creatinine was near three, three and a half, and again, was anemic. His hemoglobin was around nine, wasn't really responding to any, you know, ARNF-type therapy. So they did think it was time to start treatment on him, and he was initially treated with MPT. Can you explain what that is? Melphalan, prednisone, and thalidomide. And he only achieved a partial remission on this treatment, and it was ultimately stopped in about November 2008 due to some cytopenias from the drug, as well as kind of achieving his you know maximum response for him. I guess we should say, too, that thalidomide was kind of the first generation of these drugs. That right. Maybe wasn't as well tolerated or effective as the subsequent, particularly lenalidomide, but I guess in 2008, that's what we were doing. Yep, in 2008, that's what we were using more of. And, you know, certainly thalidomide has, you know, a higher side effect profile than lenalidomide in the imids today that we use more frequently. But yeah, so I'm not sure at that time how well he tolerated that, but did only achieve a partial response. So they did take him off treatment that time. How bad was his renal failure? Was dialysis being considered? No, fortunately, he did not have to start dialysis. With treatment, they were able to bring his creatinine down somewhat. It never normalized, but he never required dialysis. So what happened subsequent to that? He was off treatment for a while, then ultimately did progress in early 2009. In early 2009, he was started on a clinical trial with lenalidomide and dexamethasone in about May 2009. And this clinical trial specifically was looking at patients with renal dysfunction. And he is actually currently still on this therapy, still on this clinical trial, just recently commenced cycle number 40. He's taking five milligrams days one through 21, tolerating the drug quite well and doing well. What's his lifestyle like? And again, significant others. You know, he is 87 now. He is married. He has a son that's a physician who comes to most of his appointments. He's got a bit of dementia. He's quite forgetful. So fortunately, one of his sons helps him a lot. But he does appear to take all of his drugs as directed. His wife is at home. She doesn't attend many of his appointments with him. His son does. But his wife is at home. And he does very well. You know, not a very active gentleman, but fortunately has a lot of family involvement. What have you seen in terms of dermatologic issues with the image, specifically lenalidomide, any rashes? A small percentage. You know, I've only seen maybe one really bad case. I would say in general, most cases are mild. Most patients will develop that rash early on when they, you know, initially first start the drug. But again, pretty mild. And many patients, oftentimes if we stop the drug, let that rash improve and then re-challenge them with their lenalidomide, 
they often tolerate it very well the next time around. So it's just because they develop it the first time doesn't mean, you know, it's not an option. There are certainly some patients where it has been worse that we've had to stop the drug, but some, again, we're able to rechallenge and they tolerate it well. Now, I noticed that he did not have bone disease and he still doesn't have bone disease? Correct. I guess there's been a lot of debate about whether or not bone targeting therapy, specifically bisphosphonate, should be used in patients with myeloma who don't have bone disease. How do you all approach that? Yeah, we often do not use a bisphosphonate at this time in patients who have no bone disease. It's still certainly important to check the skeletal surveys and check annually to make sure they haven't developed any bone disease. Currently, we're not using bisphosphonates often in these patients who have no bone disease. Now, the other patient we had talked about had a pathologic fracture, you know, a lot of bone problems. How do you approach bone targeted therapy, specifically bisphosphonates in those kinds of patients? Yeah, in those patients, certainly we would start them on a bisphosphonate at the beginning of their treatment. Most physicians at our center do treat for two years. At that point, if the patient is in remission, often stop the bisphosphonate after two years and then would initiate it again at any new skeletal event in the future. Otherwise, often for two years and then they'll stop if the patient's in remission. What do you say to patients about to begin bisphosphonates in terms of osteonecrosis of the jaw, ONJ? What kind of preventive maneuvers do you do? So oftentimes before we initially start a patient on a bisphosphonate, we make sure that they do have a good dental exam, a good dental cleaning, make sure they don't have any active dental issues. If they do, we recommend they go ahead and get those taken care of before they start the bisphosphonate, certainly because there is that fear of osteonecrosis of the jaw. And we have seen in some patients who have been on one of the bisphosphonates who have needed some sort of dental treatment, it seems like going and getting that dental treatment kind of exasperates that ONJ. So again, we tell patients to get out there and get a good dental cleaning, get any issues taken care of before they start a bisphosphonate. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our faculty and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Multiple Myeloma Update.